welcome to episode nine of the Pharmacist Matters podcast. I'm your host, Justin Bates. Today's program is focused on two subjects that are close to my heart, a little bit of sports and lots of politics. When I mentioned to the team that I wanted to do an episode on the political landscape, given what's happening in the US, Canada, and certainly here in Ontario, I was really excited when they came back with an all-star guest in Amanda Galbraith. Amanda is a principal at Navigator and brings over 15 years of communications experience working in the federal and municipal government, private sector, on political campaigns, and as a journalist. Prior to joining Navigator, Amanda was director of communications to the mayor of Toronto. While in the mayor's office, she played a key role in shepherding two multi-billion dollar budgets and the city's successful labor negotiations. She brings a unique understanding of the emerging role municipalities are playing in crafting public policy and as key players in the global economy. Frequently called on for her public affairs expertise in the media, Amanda is a weekly contributor to News Talk 1010 and guest columnist with the Toronto Sun. She also serves as director of the Canadian Club of Toronto, Canada's oldest podium of record. Amanda holds a Bachelor of Journalism degree from Carleton University. Amanda, it's great to have you on the program this morning. Thank you so much for having me. So I wanted to start with uh, some sports and, and start with the NFL because, you know, I understand you're, you're a Detroit Lions fan and there's, there's a lot of teams to dislike in the NFL, but I can <laughs> honestly say that the Detroit Lions aren't one of them. Everyone's pulling for the Lions to at least have a, a winning record uh, in, in some, at some point in their, their franchise history. I'm a Bills fan, so I'm also suffering and I understand what it's like to, to lose, but we're certainly having and enjoying a great start to the season. But just jumping off from that point, I'm wondering what you think of how the NFL has dealt with this season so far amid the COVID outbreak. And when you compare it to some of the other sports like the NHL and NBA that had a bubble, um, what are your thoughts? Have they done things the right way? Um, You know, I was pretty uncomfortable with the NFL's plans, uh, but, you know, I think MLB by far was the worst uh, of it. And perhaps why the NFL seems to be sort of, I guess you could say, getting away with it, um, I think is two things. One because there's just less games uh, and there's a week between, but you know, now we're seeing can- temporary cancellations or suspensions of games. Um, and, you know, as we know kind of the toll, the beating they take, these players take means you can't play more than a game a week. Um, so I'm not quite sure how they're going to reschedule this stuff. Uh, and the other thing I think is just people are so, you know, inured to the, to the pandemic, right. It's just a part of everyday life that outbreaks and postponements and stuff, stuff that would have been fantastical four months ago now seem a bit more routine. So we're just less sensitive to it. But the one thing I will say is pretty surreal is I, I, I don't know if you, I'm sure you're watching other games as well, but uh, some of the, some of the stadiums where they have like 50% or 20% capacity is just surreal to watch. I'm just like, Whoa, there are people in the stands. Mm-hmm. So like so far they've done okay. I think, you know, the NBA as with everything is the gold standard They're you know, the pointing of the spear as far as, like leadership on issues from Black Lives Matter to the pandemic. And I think all the other, um, all the other, you know, kind of areas sort of follow. So they've been doing okay, but to me, it's definitely, I would give them like a B minus, I guess, if I had to give them a grade. I was surprised to see that the Bills and Titans are playing tonight as we record this on Tuesday, uh, given the outbreak with the Titans. And they had over 23 personnel uh, come down with uh, positive test results for COVID-19. And you have to wonder about player safety and and what's being held uh, as a paramount priority. Yeah, for sure. I was actually I was reading a really um, a fascinating piece. I think it was in Slate about the um, University of Alabama, you know, like the roll tide as they uh, as they cheer and how basically 
come hell or high water, they are going to play football there. And uh, it's it's become a major issue with outbreaks. Like the school has so many outbreaks, they've stopped disclosing it publicly. So I think there's just this sense in the U.S. that like football, you know, it's such a, I grew up in a border town, Windsor, right? And we had, the reason I'm a Lions fan for almost 30 years is we had season tickets when I was a young girl. So I used to go with my dad. Um, and we still have yet to really do anything successful the whole time I've been been a fan. Um, but it's such a part of the American fabric that I just can't, I don't think they can imagine life without it really. So the suspension of that isn't going to happen. But I think to your point, player safety, uh, public safety really is in jeopardy for this. Um, but they seem willing to kind of roll the dice. It's also about the credibility of the games when you have to have second string or practice mm-hmm. squad players play. It, 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 I think, tugs at the integrity of the season and uh, the records. Uh, you want to see the best players play and you want it done in a, in a safe manner. You talked a little bit about uh, the fact that football is so important and part of the fabric, the culture in the U.S. and almost similar to what hockey is here in Canada. And I've been fortunate enough to go to many college games and NFL games throughout the U.S. And it, it is like a religion. It, it, there is a uh, massive following and, and it's part of the uh, social fabric, really, uh, about the tailgating and everything. Um, certainly when it relates to the fans and the different states, the way they're managing the restrictions and trying to keep their people safe, and with the politics being what they are right now in the U.S. with a president that uh, seems to be in defiance of uh, some of the science and realities, uh, I wonder if that's contributing to it when you see on TV, uh, college in particular, I thought that was unreal to see some of those stands look like they were full, even though they were at 50% capacity. But how much of this do you think is being driven by political ideology and some of the rhetoric that's coming from the White House? Oh, certainly I think a lot. Right. I mean, as we've seen in Canada, um, you know, we look to our political leaders in times of strife for guidance and uh, what, you know, the U.S. is obviously a lot more, you know, state focused, I would say, than than here in in Canada. I mean, we take our guidance from our our premiers. They've kind of stood up, but um, also the PM. But I think that the president's disregard for um, for public health um, and basic standards like mask wearing is, is a bit surreal. The other thing I think is important to understand is just generally, you know, states' rights, personal rights are very important um, to the more kind of right, the more right you sit in the political spectrum, the more you're like to be skeptical of government intervention. Um, we saw that, I think, in Ontario when the premier was sort of reluctant to force people back in the stage too, um, where other sort of politicians more on the left of the spectrum were saying like intervene, intervene. So I think in the U.S. we're seeing that borne out. I, I watched a really interesting graphic where it was basically the outbreak started in what would you call democratic states. Um, and over the last six months, it's just all red states have risen at the top because those governments are just less likely to tell you what to do. Um, so I think that in combination with the, like a total lack of leadership from the U.S. president has kind of mixed itself together into, you know, kind of the nightmare we're seeing take place south of the border. I don't envy political leaders during this time. And we hear unprecedented, uncharted, all of those uh, buzzwords. But it is really true, given the uh, stakes. And when you think about uh, the economy, you think about small businesses uh, recently in, in Toronto and Peel and Ottawa going back to stage two, or at least uh, some rendition of stage two. And I, you know, it, it breaks your heart to see some of these uh, folks that won't be able to open their doors uh, and what that means for their life and, and mental health well-being. So it's a very difficult position to be in, but you have to let, I believe, science lead a lot of this uh, and give science a, a strong seat at the table and voice. And, you know, what? how do you think the... How do you think the election is going to play out here in the U.S., um, given how Trump and the administration has 
um, handled the the COVID outbreak and the pandemic? Do you think this is going to have a direct result or do you think it's going to be about other issues? Uh, I think it's going to be a mess <laughs> uh, for a variety of reasons. One, you know, everybody that I think we focus on national polling, right, which is, you know, shows Biden ahead and, and whatever. But um, one, I'm always sort of Republicans poll lower um, just like conservatives do generally, people don't like to admit it. So you can probably add a couple points on for Trump there. And then in addition, it's not taking into account, you know, really where the vote, like the system they have, I mean, it really matters in a few states. You're talking about, you know, a hundred thousand, you know, a couple hundred thousand um, votes can decide this thing. Uh, not to mention, you know, just the gerrymandering that's happening with where are the voting boxes going and discourage, like all that stuff is going to have a huge impact. So, you know, I think I hope like the rest of us that, you know, Biden doesn't really, you know, light the world on fire. He's a safer alternative to the president today. Um, but I do think that uh, if people think that the coronavirus, obviously his handling of it is is an impact because you see the Biden campaign leaning into it and Trump was trying to distract from it unsuccessfully because he got it. Um, I think it's going to have an impact. I think people are voting on lots of things down south. And I think there's also still this sense of um, abandonment and disenfranchisement in the kind of rural areas of that country that we just don't quite understand here. And, you know, Trump really speaks to those people. So I think we have to be very aware that he he didn't get elected by accident um, and that could happen again. He's almost emboldened since he became uh, sick or ill with the uh, COVID-19 um, in de- even greater defiance, I would say, and, and showing, trying to show his strength. And, uh, you know, I, I wonder if that will play a role in convincing people not to wear masks that follow him and seeing that he recovered from this successfully, we think, um, may actually uh, convince more people not to follow safety protocols. Um, you know, just shifting a little bit to the debates, we had a very, uh, I would say, stark contrast between the two. One was very chaotic. The other was a little bit more of a traditional debate. Aside from the Ginsburg fly, as we affectionately call it, that landed on uh, Pence's uh, hair. But what, what did you think of uh, the debates? Did they did they change anyone's mind? Um, do you think that uh, there will be another debate? So I I didn't really think the debate, the first debate, the second debate certainly did not with the VP candidates. Like that did nothing, um, which both candidates sort of intended it to do. So I think they achieved their objectives. The first debate, I was really like, this is a nightmare and a disaster and this fixes nothing at all and doesn't influence it. And then out of it, you saw about a week later, a bunch of the polls sort of shift in favor of Biden. So you don't know if it's the debate or the coverage thereafter. Um, I thought it was a disaster. Uh, I thought that um, Chris Wallace, who actually thought did a pretty credible job given what he had to handle, um, particularly compared to the second moderator who frankly just let Pence run all over her. Um, but, you know, we just saw Trump sort of come in he seemed like almost medicated and, you know, somewhat like I call him state of the union Trump where he, you know, reads what's in front of him and does what he's supposed to do. And then he just sort of went off and it was just like an unhinged, um, well, for, I don't know if I, you guys are shit show was what it was. Um, and then, uh, and then I, I really didn't like when Biden told him to shut up. Um, I know that that was apparently a deliberate choice or they later on lean into it with the advertising, but I don't know. To me, I just was not impressed by either of those, you know, for the size and the breadth and the scope of the U.S., the fact that those are the two candidates on stage to be president is, to me, a bit shameful. Um, But here we are. Uh, You know, the purpose of debates generally is to get you want nowadays. It's not this, you know, you had a choice or kind of knockout punch like you get those sometimes, but they're very rare. But you want real clips to go viral. Right. You want stuff that's going to carry the day um, as far as coverage. And 
you know, as far as what came out of the first debate, it was shut up and it was um, it was Trump being unhinged on the second debate. It was the fly. So I'm not really sure that those are driving messages to change people's minds, um, but it certainly provides fodder for folks like us to talk about. I'm interested in your take uh, as a strong female leader in the industry uh, of how uh, things are being perceived by the media uh, and the public around Kamala Harris's uh, candidacy. And, and she had a watershed moment, I think, in the debate as well with Pence, where she said, I'm talking. And, and that seems to have really been picked up about um, the dynamic between women and men and politics and giving equal voice. Um, and what interested your thoughts on that? Yeah, she has a tough, uh, she has a tough road to, to, you know, to travel here. Um, And it was funny because she's a very effective debater. Uh, She's a former prosecutor. Like, you know, if you've seen this woman in the Senate Judiciary Committee, like she takes no prisoners. So I anticipated we see a lot more of I'm talking uh, than we did. Um, But what was clear is that uh, they feel like I'm guessing the Biden campaign feels like they're ahead. Um, There is a strong risk as a you know, frankly, a strong black female, um, you're more likely to be perceived as aggressive, as unlikable. Like there's all these things as a woman, um, not to mention a woman of color, uh, traversing that electorate in the U.S. Um, that are a lot more challenging. So I think what we saw wasn't a coached, muted Kamala Harris. And then occasionally she was kind of given that one, like, I'm speaking, which was I kind of like it was like Mama Kamala telling him, like, put her hand up, like, no, 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 mm-hmm. we're not doing this right now. Um, so I think she was effective there. I would have loved to seen her punch more, but that again is, is me. And I am already a solid, I would be a solid democratic voter in the U S therefore she's not trying to appeal to me, right? She's trying to appeal to switchers. Um, so I think it's really tremendous, uh, that she is, you know, first Southeast Asian, uh, first black woman, um, nominee, uh, for vice president. Um, I think, you know, we got a long way to go before, we're seen as equal. Um, and I think that she's done a credible job so far. Um, the other thing is obviously, you know, Biden's age, right? She's really much more of a president in waiting than you typically see. So her her appearing presidential, calm, um, you know, level-headed is going to be much more important, I think, even than a typical VP candidate would be. I will say that uh, I think uh, certainly Pence is a good debater. Now, maybe mm-hmm. some of what he said, you know, from a fact check perspective uh, was off, but, but I think he did a very effective job and sort of steady, calm and confident um, and uh, a very significant contrast to Trump's style. Yeah, no, I actually thought he, I thought he did what he came to between the two of them. Frankly, I thought he won that debate, like hands down, because he just went effectively got his message, um, was calm, did not, um, other than some of the, t- the talking over, I thought was a bit uh, obnoxious. Um, but I think to people who would vote for him or be interested in him, he would have kind of presented what they were looking for. So I actually thought Pence did a better job uh, than Kamala Harris did in that debate, even though I, I obviously was rooting for her quite considerably. So the impact to Canada, when we look at what's going to happen uh, in the next couple of weeks with the election in the U.S., if the if Trump wins again, what does it mean to Canadian politics and our economy and, and the impacts? Uh, who knows? Um, you know, I don't think it's had the impact that we think we feel like it has. Right. I think there's a lot of noise there. Um, and obviously, you know, the tariff skirmishes that occur and then come back off and on again, like those are pain in the butt for the government. Right. And obviously it freaks industry out and that's not helpful. But to me, I feel like Trump has been a lot of bluster and not a ton of um, 
bite uh to mix metaphors um for canada i think you know i'm no huge fan of the trudeau government uh but i think they've actually quite credibly dealt with um this president and a lot of that can be laid at the feet of uh, christian freeland who was negotiating and did a very good job with the new nafta um and you know we've hit back appropriately with tariffs when necessary we've leveraged the governors so i think it would be more of the same um i don't think it i think one thing it will obviously impact is the border uh given his lack of desire to really like bear down and and, and sort of eradicate covid um i don't think we'll see that border opening anytime soon if trump is reelected versus maybe with biden maybe in six seven eight months we could we could see something happen um so you know i think but as a canadian you want your governments to be more aligned with the with our you know our biggest trading partner and uh you can't really as much as they've kind of had a business-like relationship it's obviously very challenging to deal with these guys so i do um i do hope we have an alternative but i, I don't think it'd be quite the disaster that people think it would be other than obviously from a moral perspective i, I certainly think that uh with the new free trade agreement and the way that it was handled uh we certainly held our end up and uh, i think in the end people are going to see it on balance as being good for both countries so I wonder with Biden, you know, what would change beyond perhaps more ideological alignment with Trudeau's liberals? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think we would hopefully see a more business-like relationship return. I'm guessing that Biden would probably like to, much like Obama did, have a like a nice warm and fuzzy relationship with the with the RPM. Um, you know, he's still got some star power out there. Uh, it's also we're kind of an easy partner for for them. Um, I think so. We think we'd see that. I also think we'd see less of these, you know, ridiculous like aluminum tariffs and you know whatever kind of lashing out randomly um so that would be good uh but yeah i don't think it'd be at least from us that way would be massive i think there'd probably be some implications around nato um and some other sort of international trade deals that we're part of or that the u.s is a part of um but as far as like you know domestic politics day-to-day stuff here uh, i don't think it would be that significant so that's a great transition to talking about canadian politics before we jump into provincial politics in ontario and you sort of my my starting point when i was thinking about preparing for this was to ask you what's happened with the liberal party and i say that respectfully across the country including um federally because what i've observed over the last decade um is that these are not your liberals of Cretchen and martin of uh, centrist moderates um, that have occupied the middle to govern canada for much of its history we we've seen a real shift to the left uh, more alignment coalition um quasi coalitions with ndp i wanted to get your take on that is this good for canadian politics are you observing the same thing and and when will the liberal party come back to the middle uh i think the liberal party uh as you know kind of the natural governing party of 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 canada and, and frankly much of um the many of the provinces or at least ontario uh they are um you know they're crafty they're they occupy the middle and they move right or left um depending upon the mood of the electorate i think uh we also have elected frankly uh, a prime minister who's leans left and is far more interventionist than you would say from a christian or, or a martin perspective um so what they're trying to do is gobble up those votes right we actually at, at nav gator we did uh kind of a, we have the center of the purpose of the corporation which is uh sort of a a new um spin-off of our company that looks at corporations and their purpose and how they can relate to the public and what the public is expecting because we're seeing Canadians in particular want 
corporations to have purposes. They want them to intervene. They want them to have a perspective on social issues. Um, and I think the government's reading that as well in their polling, right? You can't just sit back and let stuff happen. We want us to force, uh, you know, more environmental this, or we want you to intervene and have a bigger social safety net. I also think they're looking at this pandemic and frankly, seeing an opportunity to kind of rethink and reshape how the government interacts with the public. Um, and that is to Trudeau's advantage because then he eats NDP's lunch. And we know the only way the only way conservatives win is when there's a strong NDP. So it's 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 in Trudeau's best interest to keep his foot on their neck, which he's been doing quite effectively. Um, so I think we see a very sophisticated political machine, uh, which you know is so much to my chagrin because I'm a lifelong conservative, um, but uh, I respect it. Um, and you know I'll be I think eventually, hopefully, probably what's going to happen is this pandemic will you know, God willing, abate. Um, We're going to have massive bills and austerity. People are going to be mad and the liberals will probably have to swing a little bit back to the right. Um, but I don't think we'll be seeing that anytime soon. And how would you grade the Trudeau liberals in their response to the the pandemic? Do you think they're doing a good job? Uh, I think, yeah, I think largely they've been doing as best they can. I think that um, there were some really missteps around mask wearing. Um, I also think the one thing that's really hurting them is uh, Health Canada approval of testing. Uh, I think they're, you know, the the fact that the rapid tests have not been approved faster, um, you know, access to testing is challenging. But I would say overall, I'd give them like, you know, B plus, A minus. I think they've been doing a pretty good job. Um, the PM, uh, especially early on, was very visible, um, you know, was reassuring the public. Uh, he does that really well, right? Um, you know, consoler in chief. Uh, so I think they've been doing uh, decently well. Um, I am... I am concerned about them using this. I think they certainly, you know, also Serb, for example, was was very well done. I think they fell a lot in the um, landlord subsidy, you know, the rent subsidy. That was a disaster and did not work. Um, and we're seeing empty storefronts all over the place because of it. So, you know, as far as a crisis, immediate crisis management, I think they did a pretty good job. As far as, you know, what happens the six months later, uh, I think they're starting to kind of really show their wear uh, and their lack of um, nimbleness, uh, which will probably continue to wear on the public. We've seen to some degree an unprecedented uh, bipartisanship between the provinces and the federal government um, in the midst of this this crisis. Do you see that continuing or are we going to go back to the traditional party lines? Um, I think that it depends on the premiers, right? I mean, obviously we've seen Jason Kenney's been quite uh, aggressive with them throughout this uh, and he's the premier of Alberta. Uh, I think a premier Ford certainly, you know, from they basically campaigned against one, used each other to campaign against one another, which is not new. Uh, to now, all of a sudden, he's besties with Christopher Freeland. Um, I would expect we'll see we'll see more of that, and I think that's less so about the pandemic. Although I think that spurred it, is, is just the premiers kind of found uh, people like it that he gets along. Um, they like that kind of folksiness, so they're happy to see him kind of put politics aside, I guess, for the good of the public where he can. Uh, so I think, you know, I don't think we're post-political by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I think the appetite for real partisan attacks um, is not strong. Where I think that wavers is, again, around this testing issue that we're seeing. And then obviously we have Quebec, right, who, um, you know, has a very interesting relationship with the Liberal government, historically with Liberal government's period. Um, the premier there, Legault, is, uh, you know, more on the right side of things. So he's kind of naturally predisposed to sort of have a more of a, pugilistic relationship with the government so uh, which you know he hasn't so much throughout this uh, pandemic so we will see i don't think we're post-political um but i certainly think the appetite for elections and politicking as normal um is not there yet
Interesting. So do you see uh, healthcare policy dominating the landscape for the next several months and perhaps years with this uh, alignment with the NDP? And, and Or what do you see as the priorities of the federal government? I certainly think healthcare policy will be important. I mean, the funny thing about this is, as you would know, right, is is as much as the the feds were, you know, why are you releasing? Remember early on, I was like, release the the modeling. Why aren't you releasing the modeling? Well, the modeling is actually all the provincial models that are put together. Right, a lot of this stuff is being driven out of the provinces. So uh, I think they're going to try and toe in there because people expect them to have a role, which is what we saw with obviously the PharmaCare, um, you know, nod in the throne speech this year. Um, and I think the public itself wants to be taken care of by their government right now. They are anxious. Um, we are closing things down and reopening them. We don't know, you know, all of a sudden condo values are dropping in Toronto for the first time in forever. Um, so I think people are anxious. They expect more government intervention, period. Um, healthcare includes that. So I do think there's an opportunity certainly to advocate and to change the system. Um, I haven't seen governments being willing to consider things that are outside the box um, or stuff they would say, oh no, you know, that will take a year. This will take whatever. And all of a sudden they're doing things like that in, in, in weeks and months. So um, I certainly think there's an opportunity there. I don't think it'll be just healthcare though. Obviously I think environment, they've signaled this, right? Um, we're going to see kind of a Canadian version of the green new deal if they can get it together. Um, whether that one, you know, that dog hunts will be interesting given the Ontario uh, examples that occurred here. But uh, yeah, I certainly think it'll be at the forefront at least for the next year or two. So with a $400 billion deficit, how much flexibility do they have to spend on some of these uh, projects like the Green New Deal? And we saw in Ontario with the previous government how the environmental policy actually created some challenges as it related to cost of energy, uh, electricity, and, and things of that nature. So do you see that also uh, playing, uh, playing out uh, positively or negatively at, at the federal level? I mean, I, I like from a personal perspective, I'm horrified. Um, as far as a polling or public opinion perspective, people don't care about deficits. Like they just don't care. Uh, and I, I think part of this is unlike you know, you know, previous generations, boomers, and that kind of thing. You know, who felt like they cared about deficits and debt and that kind of thing. We have a whole generation of people that are growing up just assuming they'll be in debt for the rest of their lives, that they may never own a home. So they don't really care if the government goes into $400 million worth of debt in order to pay for something for them or to cover something off. Uh, I think it's a slippery slope and it's tremendously dangerous because eventually we will have to service that debt as we are doing in Ontario. Um, but you even saw with Premier Ford, with all respect to the, you know, the austerity and saving money and whatever, I mean, we're running higher deficits even before the pandemic um, than the previous Liberal government had. I mean, they they spend they spent freely as well. And now we're in, you know, anything you say goes um, territory. So I think these guys are going to be willing to throw money around and they've made it very clear. I mean, we still have yet to have a budget, right? I mean, people don't remember this or don't even think about this, but literally, federally, we have not had a budget this year. That is insane. I understand that it's hard to you know, calculated, but surely the finance department has some sense of how much money we could or could not spend. I mean, as a household, could you imagine if you're like, nah, we're just not going to have a budget this year. What does it matter? Like, that's not how businesses work. I don't know why that's how the government can work. So on that topic of the budget, how do you think Morneau's exit uh, from politics will impact uh, the budget process and, and the government? Uh, it'll be interesting to see, right? Uh, he was sort of uh, at least pictured as, like, painted in some way as the guy holding back the flood of spending and requests, which is you know, typical of a finance minister. It's a tough job. Uh, you know, Freeland, I think, 
is interesting in that, like, unlike typically, you know, finance ministers sort of create this, their own vortex of power, right? Like they kind of stand separate from PMO. Um, they have their own sort of, you know, and we saw that with Martin. Um, we saw that again with, uh, with Flaherty, um, you know, like which who obviously preceded him, we saw that a little less with someone like Joe Oliver, or um, you know, with some with some others. And I think you know, uh, Morno was more of a behind the scenes guy. I'm not saying that he was influential, but he certainly wasn't willing to kind of use that bully pulpit in public. Uh, Freeland is a different animal, right? She has her own circle of influence. She has her own star power. She doesn't quite need the premise or need the approval as much, I think, as as, as her predecessor. So. What her stamp will look like will be very interesting to see. Um, I think the change obviously will be they're going to spend more money. Um, I think they're going to care a lot less about the deficit than Morneau did, even if you could argue, um, you know, his carrying on that was not that high compared to predecessors. So, you know, it'll be interesting. And also, we, I don't think you should just under, underestimate the mechanics of it all, like how unsettling it is in the midst of a pandemic to lose your finance minister, to lose all those staff. All those people who have the knowledge, the understanding that, you know, some of them have stayed on, um, but, you know, we have clients that are, are working with the finance minister's office and all of a sudden it's a whole new crew. Um, so that is, that's a real challenge just from a continuity perspective, um, let alone, you know, a different fiscal approach, which I think these two are going to bring. Interesting perspective. Do you think Freeland is a prime minister in waiting? Uh, I think people certainly paint her as such. Uh, she's quite credible. Um, she's really smart. Uh, she is... I think she'd be a fascinating um, liberal leader. I would prefer her head and shoulders above the the current PM. So I'm, I'm guessing she has her eye there. She's very ambitious. Uh, but I do think the media, we certainly like to trump it up a lot more than than perhaps, um, you know, she is is even desiring it or the, I'm guessing the current PM wants it to happen that way. But yeah, I, I certainly see she's the most obvious one. I think there are others. Um Mark Carney being one of them um, that are obviously waiting the wings and he'd be formidable as well. So, you know, I think it's good news for the Liberal Party that at least they have a current PM, but they also have, you know, at least two very credible candidates uh, who could replace him if needed. How strong is Trudeau's grip on power within the caucus? I don't know. I, that's a, I, I'm not in Ottawa anymore, so uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, we don't hear a lot of... Um, eruptions about it, so that's probably a good sign. Uh, but... Uh, you know, that being said, it's tough in a government. Um, it's tough in a second mandate. Um, minorities kind of force a little more discipline, which is a good thing. I mean, the worst kinds of governments to manage are majorities. Uh, Brian Mulroney, I think in his bo- one of his books, I uh, just talked about just like the work it was to manage. Because <laughs> all of a sudden you had a majority, you know, there's a chicken in every pot, right? Everybody gets a cabinet post. Um, and there's just less of that expectation and more discipline in a minority government, which I think is going to benefit him. So when are we going to go to election again federally? Ah, uh, you know, I, I would have, there was actually some serious preparation happening in my, like talking to folks up in Ottawa, um, a couple months, about a month or two ago. Uh, but I think that the poll numbers sort of dipped down again. So it's less likely. Uh, I don't think the NDP is motivated to trigger one. They don't have, um, a pot to piss in, so they can't really run an election campaign. Uh, so I think we'll, we'll probably at least a year away. I mean, that's be unusual given minority governments usually don't last this long, but given most of the provinces, um, Quebec, Ontario, which are their big voter areas. Um, and then, you know, you're seeing resurgence at West just starting. We're into a second wave. I can't imagine the government calling that. I think that they would get in big trouble for it. And on that topic, do you think that Aaron O'Toole, as a new leader of the Conservative Party, can broaden the base and appeal to uh, undecided voters? He's certainly making the first steps, the right steps initially, right? Uh, you know, I think his opening 
um, speech was was quite good. Uh, I also thought that ad that he did where he talked about his history in Durham and, you know, um, you know, the auto plant sector and that kind of stuff like that was a kind of a different kind of conservative. I also think his, you know, outright support for LGBTQ, for trans rights is important. So he's doing the right things and he's sort of putting aside or answering the big questions that usually dog conservative leaders. There's also a more positive kind of, you know, happy sort of approach to it that we didn't really see from Sheer. Sheer kind of was a bit, I think, more of a it's perceived as like as much as he was a smiley person and a nice person, he was perceived as more angry. Whereas I feel like um, O'Toole is more of a happy warrior, which will, which will go well. Like I kind of, I was saying this on news talk the other day um, when I was close to the show and I was like, you know, who would you, if you had to borrow a cup of sugar or you had to ask someone to watch your house, who would you ask to watch your house, Aaron O'Toole or Justin Trudeau? And like, for me, regardless of, I just think Aaron O'Toole seems like a more responsible guy. So I would get him to do it. I would totally go borrow sugar from him. Um, so I think that he's got that likability factor that uh, the last, you know, few conservative leaders have missed, uh, which is a good thing. And let's be honest, uh, the, the party struggles with the stigma that it's the angry white man's party, um, not necessarily pro-choice. And, and some of the social issues have dogged them for years. So, you know, how do they break out of that mold and appeal to much more of a diverse uh, supporting base? Well, they have to start saying bluntly, we support um, the rights of LGBTQ people. We have to acknowledge systemic racism. I think they have to do all those things. Uh, and, and the Aaron O'Toole is definitely doing that. Um, it's going to be a long road, right? And that will always probably dog conservatives. Um, it's something that's frustrated me considerably given, you know, I, I don't share those perspectives. I understand they exist, but they also exist in the NDP and the, well, less of so the NDP, but they certainly exist in the Liberal Party. Um, so I think they have to just be very blunt and say, we are in, it's 2020. Um, we are a modern political party who represent the broad spectrum of Canadians um, who include folks who are gay, who are lesbian, who are trans, who, you know, have different beliefs. And I think Aaron is starting that conversation. But, you know, it's going to take a while to convince people of that. And it's going to take a while to cut through, particularly given we're in the midst of a pandemic, you know, and because, frankly, of the pandemic um, and just the nature of that leadership race, uh, there was just way less attention on it than there typically would be. So what we're seeing is a, is a conservative leader that's sort of entering the political sphere where even though he's had a long career, people just are less familiar with him, right? So he has an opportunity to introduce himself. So he's taking that time to do it. Um, I think he's doing a lot on digital, which is smart. And we'll probably continue to see that. A lot of this is connecting with people, right? And having the empathy and compassion and also philosophically, you know, understanding what government's role is. Is it really government's role to tell you what you should do with your body or not? And, you know, I think we're moving into an era where that's not government's place, regardless of one's personal beliefs. And uh, perhaps that's more of a libertarian type of uh, viewpoint, but I think the vast majority of Canadians want their uh, decisions to be their own um, and not being dictated on a morality from a political party. Yeah, for sure. But I actually think if he said that it's up to people to decide on their own and government shouldn't be in the middle of it, uh, I think he'd get in trouble, right? I think he has to say that he's pro-choice. Um, I think that's the kind of the only way he'll, he'll put that that to rest. Um, but I know I agree. Certainly there's lots of libertarians out there and, and folks just believe generally that, you know, government doesn't have a place in uh, in telling you what to do with your body or anything else. Um, and I think some of that's actually just being, you know, borne out now with the whole mask versus no mask, shutdown, quarantine, do I go see my mom for Christmas? That sort of latent um, libertarianism that does exist in Canada is certainly um, poking its head up um, throughout this pandemic. 
So shifting to Ontario, our favorite province, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> how do you grade uh, the Ford government's response to the pandemic? Uh, I think that from a PR perspective, they've done a very good job. Um, I think the premier has certainly grown into his role. Um, you know, his, I, I still would have discontinued the daily show, but I get why they do the, the daily press conferences at one or one, one thirty. Um, you know, it drives news. He's present. He's folksy. Um, he's got a bit of a Teflon to him now where, you know, when stuff happens, he's like, well, the testing's up. I'm really mad about that. And I'm going to check that out. Like, which I don't think the PM, for example, or others would necessarily get away with, uh, but he's got this kind of every man to him that that's good. I think um, to be totally honest, they've botched the testing um, big time. Um, they weren't ready for the second wave. It's not unique to them. We saw this in the UK and other areas, but we had to see other provinces doing, um, you know, pharmacy testing um, months ahead of us, Alberta, BC. Um, we saw the use of the saliva testing in BC, which wasn't being used here. And I'm not quite sure why that's the case. Um, you know, I just think there were some other things too, for example, even just the criteria around schooling. Um, BC moved to remove sniffles and, you know, non-COVID related criteria much faster uh, than the government did here, which caused obviously the huge, one of the reasons behind the huge um, uptick and uh, backlog. So I think they've, I think they've screwed that up. Um, and I think it's frustrating, but overall, I think the public would say they've done a good job. Um, I think they've worked really hard. I have a lot of friends in that government who've been working around the clock uh, to manage this. And I do think the fact that we had such a depression in the cases over the summer does speak to some of the measures and how they were working. So I think on balance, um, they've sort of hit the mark. Um, I think where they're vulnerable is the testing, uh, but hopefully they're leaning in to fix that. Well, certainly with expanding it to pharmacies um, is a is a start in that direction. We've seen Health Canada also approve uh, a couple weeks ago the Abbott test for it's a molecular based test um, that will be giving results within 15 minutes and, and decreases the dependency on the lab system, which will create some capacity and reduce the bottleneck there from the public testing centers. But you see the shifting guidance from public health on who should get a test, who shouldn't, uh, where to go to get a test. And I think that's creating some confusion within the public. Um, And now we've shifted from uh, what was walk-ins for public health testing and appointments now to appointment only. So the question is, does that favor certain individuals? Does it leave certain socioeconomic uh, class um, out of getting an appointment? Um, You know, is that going to cause some, some challenges? I think certainly it would, right? Like I actually had to get a test um, last week. I wasn't, it was, it was a non, I wasn't at risk or whatever, but I had to prove that I had, I was COVID free. Um, and I was able to, I'm on Twitter. So I saw someone tweet out about uh, women's college hospital having a really good system, got up at six 30, filled out the form, submitted it, had a call back and I had a test book the next day. Like it was very seamless for me, but one, I have the wherewithal, I have a computer, um, English is my first language. Uh, that stuff really does benefit me. And I think it really disadvantages some communities, many communities out, out there that frankly are where this, you know, the uptick of these cases are happening. Um, and we need to think through that. I also think the other thing that has really proven a challenge, um, not just conflicting sort of messages, sort of not confl- changing, um, you know, approvals and requirements for testing is just this, you know, the, the fight between the medical officers of health. Um, I is just a, to me is a, 
just irresponsible. Um, I understand, uh, you know, the Eileen Devilla, the medical officer of health in Toronto, and, you know, the need to speak out and say, this is what's happening in Toronto. But, you know, we saw with the first wave, at least when they did that stuff, they did it privately and the government eventually did it. Um, the fact that they felt they had to go public with that uh, and then fight with the premier publicly about it, um, to me, just confused the hell out of everybody. And what happens at this stage, right, is that people are so sick of being locked down and not being able to see friends and family. We're finally going to taste of freedom. It's like the premier says one thing. Um, Dr. David Williams says one thing and Eileen Villas says another and the mayor says another. So people are just like, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to do what I think is right. And that is probably not going to drive the curve down as fast as these governments w- would like to do so. And I think it's the, that's on their heads that they won't, they're not willing to kind of fight this out behind the scenes. They want to do it in public. What do you think of adding in more restrictions and the impact that's going to have? Should they do it? Should they go further? Uh, or have they done enough? Uh, I'm I'm actually really, I'm actually quite frustrated with, with the second lockdown phase two. Um, I actually, I have no issue with it as far as it taking place if the data was correct. But, you know, my real concern is we are recording data in restaurants, like very select places. We're not recording at the malls. I want to go into Lululemon, not, you know, wherever. So all of a sudden it's like all these cases are happening in, um, in restaurants. It's like, well, not necessarily. Right. Or, you know, the gym gyms, like, you know, other than spin studios, which I'm an avid spinner and I've not been back to a spin studio since this thing started because it would be an idiot. It's an idiotic thing to do. Of course there's outbreaks in spin studios, but there's not outbreaks in gyms and we know physical health, um, generally is really important to this. So the closures of those to me are a bit befuddling. Um, I think what we saw, frankly, is because of the testing nightmare, we lost control. We couldn't contact trace. We don't know what's happening, where it's coming from. So they just did a blanket. Like, you know, when you only have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. They just rammed it down as opposed to being more surgical. Um, I hope that this closure, which I think will desecrate our main streets and a lot of businesses and a lot of people, um, is enough to get a handle on it and we get a handle on testing so this doesn't happen again um, because we can be more, I think we should be more surgical with it. So I find this is, it's unfortunate. Um, I, my heart goes out to those restaurants and those businesses like truly, because I don't know if they'll be able to survive this. Um, but I, I do feel like the governments probably didn't have a choice given they didn't know where the COVID is coming from anymore. Mm-hmm. And as we see it play out in schools, I've got four kids in schools, uh, different schools. And, uh, you know, we as parents are wondering how long will that last? Um, but, you know, fortunately, we have seen, I think it's less than a percent uh, of cases that are in schools. So that uh, thus far hasn't been the source of the the outbreaks. And as you said, the data is challenging to be able to ascertain exactly where the outbreaks are happening. And we're sort of targeting certain areas without necessarily having all of the evidence to support uh, closing them down. I worry about the mental health impacts. I know I saw it with my kids during the lockdown, just on that personal experience, uh, the first wave where, you know, being at home all the time, uh, being teenagers and trying to uh, cope with that part of life at the same time, not being able to see their friends and, and so forth. And then you can just extrapolate that to adults and uh, what it's doing to our society and what post pandemic, whenever that might be, looks like, you know, and you mentioned condo values. And I think about the downtown core where our office is uh, at university in King, and it's still a ghost town. And what, what's the commercial real estate impacts and how will we have that uh, work life balance coming out of this? Will it, will it, 
be permanent and and change the way that we interact with each other with social distancing and you know surely some things will go back to normal and and some things will have long-term sustainability but uh, it's definitely going to have an altering impact on the economy and where investments need to happen yeah i think you know to the by the way to the provincial government's credit the school like largely they've you know we haven't had mass mass outbreaks in schools um kids are back i think they should stay open at all costs i actually really do think that's really critical um just because it helps parents it also is good for kids development but yeah what this what we look like in six months from now i don't know and as far as the mental health like i've been looking into this winter fall and just frankly i've been i was dreading it right and i was actually talking to um a friend and, and they were like, well, how are you going to make this winter awesome? And I was like, what do you mean <laughs> make winter awesome? It's going to be awful. I'm going to be stuck. I'm in a condo. I can't go to my office. Um, I can't see my friends and colleagues very much. Like what is about this is going to be awesome. So I've sort of set myself up from like a mental health perspective where I've I signed up for a course on the evolution of fashion of George Brown College. Um, we were fortunate enough. We've been saving for a couple of years. So we were able to get um, sort of a an income property, but also like a cottage in Prince Edward County. So we'll be doing that in, in the new year. Um, but, you know, I'm trying to think of ways to make myself, challenge myself, make me happy and engage. And I think that's going to be on all of us, but not everybody has the time to do that stuff or the income to do that, those things. And it was super hard the first round. I mean, just losing like my outlets from working out to friends to work. Um, and I just think the long-term implications of that are huge, but I don't buy the fact that we're all not going to be back in offices in a couple of years. I really don't buy that at all. I think that people crave contact um, and we've seen these waves happen before and people on inevitably end up back in offices because we need to, you know, cohabitate, co-locate, speak, uh, work together. So I think we will see that return. Um, so I still bet my condo is a good real estate bet. I just think it maybe uh, it takes a little longer down the road before I realize all the value of it. Yeah, that will be interesting to see how it all evolves. Uh, I, I tend to think it'll be more of a hybrid model with uh, remote work. I think there's been advantages and benefits to people working from home. I don't disagree that there is uh, a missing component to in-person meetings, but maybe it's more about collaboration zones and smaller offices and you go uh, less frequently, but you still go on a on a regular basis um, and do most, most of your work still from home. Uh, I think when you look at the savings from an overhead and community perspective, uh, particularly those that live around the 905 area and trying to commute into the city, um, you know, there's clear advantages to working from home, but you do miss out, no question, on that face-to-face element um, and where a lot of the brainstorming and creative ideas happen. So, you know, perhaps it'll be a hybrid, um, perhaps not, um, but uh, I know we're looking at our office space and seeing what the future looks like. And I've talked to many companies who have uh, been, I guess, fortunate in some ways that their leases were up and they didn't renew. So, uh, that will certainly be interesting as things evolve. Um, I want to thank you, uh, Amanda, for taking the time to join us on today's program and sharing your insights and perspectives. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great discussion. Yes, likewise. That's all the time we have for today's episode. So be sure to subscribe to our podcast. And until next time, be safe and be well.